Welcome to episode 112 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, politics and culture. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alegi. We welcome Peter back from his recent conference in Mangaung, Blamfontein. Our guest today is Emeritus Professor Alois Malambo, Acting Head of Historical and Heritage Studies at the University of Pretoria. He holds degrees from the Universities of Canterbury, SOAS at London and Duke, and taught at the Universities of Zimbabwe, Bayero in Nigeria, Minnesota, Duke, North Carolina State and Pretoria. Dr. Malambo has published widely on Zimbabwe's economic and political history, authoring or editing eight books, including recently A History of Zimbabwe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2014, with A History of Southern Africa due this year. He has also written on such matters as the history of migration, Robert Mugabe and land, industrialization and deindustrialization, and the sugar industry in Zimbabwe, to mention just a few. Welcome, Dr. Malambo. Thank you very much. Um, I'm grateful for your invitation. It's great to have you here on uh, such a wonderful May morning. And um, one of the ways that we start the podcast often is by asking our distinguished guests about how they became academics, uh, to flesh out a little bit uh, the stories behind the scholarship. So how did you become an historian? Well, my first love was actually English literature, not history. So that my first degree was uh, you know, a joint honors uh, program at um, Kent University in Canterbury where English was my major and history was my minor. Uh, but somewhere through that you know, three years of undergraduate, uh, the shift uh, occurred. And that had to do with a course that I took under a man called uh, Roger Anstey, who was uh, you know, an expert on the African uh, transatlantic slave trade. And it was in those courses that uh, you know, I became interested in, you know, uh, in African history in general, but also sort of the economic aspects of you know, African history. Uh, and uh, from there, I never looked back. And you've made economic history, especially of Zimbabwe, your forte. Uh, you're widely uh, respected in that field. And uh, your latest article uh, in the Journal of Developing Societies, uh, to my mind, is an excellent survey of 25 years of economic decline and, and de-industrialization in Zimbabwe. I remember when I was in Zimbabwe, in the 1980s, uh, the manufacturing was still chugging along and Zimbabwe historically had been quite a strong industrial power. And you note that there has been this uh, decline from Zimbabwe being the second most industrialized country in sub-Saharan Africa at independence in 1980 to a rapid decline. How can we identify the main causes of, of this implosion? I think it's a combination of uh, poor policies by the powers that be, uh, but also, you know, uh, the operation of uh, forces that are beyond the control of uh, the, the country. The first decade of independence from 1980 to 1990, I think, was a, a period of uh, expansion and, and progress, both uh, in social policy as well as uh, the economy. Uh, but by the end of that decade, uh, it had become clear that uh, the economy was not growing it's as fast a pace as would you know, maintain uh, what uh, the country required. The problem, I think, was that the first decade, uh, the government was uh, you know, 
focusing much more on distribution rather than of, um, production of our food. Uh, so it was free health, it was free education, it was free this, free that. But you know, nobody pays attention to you know, the needs to keep up with um, the uh, production side of things. By the end of the decade, it had become very clear that the economy was not doing well. And then the decision was to go uh, to the Economic Structural Adjustment Program. The ESAP. ESAP, yeah. uh, which is sort of uh, IMF and World Bank inspired. And uh, the hope was that ESAP would uh, revamp the economy. In fact, it did the opposite. And I remember I was in Zimbabwe in 1989 and there was quite an unusual division between the opinions of Robert Mugabe and uh, I think Bernard Chizero. Yes. And, and uh, you know, in some ways Mugabe is supposed to have been opposed to, to that shift. I think uh, Chizero won the day because, uh, you know, he was uh, sort of uh, very influential in terms as a, as a minister of uh, you know, uh, uh, economic policy. And uh, he persuaded the cabinet that the way to go was uh, this ESAP way. The result was that in 1990, Zimbabwe uh, introduced uh, ESAP, uh, which was supposed to last until 1994. By the end of those four years, the effects were very clear that uh, ESAP was actually doing the opposite of what it was expected to do. Uh, the industrialization started in that period, uh, when companies were relocating to neighboring uh, you know, countries because of uh, a variety of uh, problems coming from the liberalization of the economy and competition from well-established producers uh, internationally. Uh, I think during the 1990s, there were two very poor decisions that were taken by the Mugabe government. The first one was to give uh, war veterans a financial package. He had come under uh, increasing pressure from the war veterans uh, who were demanding that they should be recognized for the sacrifices they made uh, towards independence. And he buckled under and uh, allocated them large sums of money, uh, 50,000 uh, you know, uh, competents given large uh, packages, which had not been budgeted for. Uh, and that had an effect almost immediately in that the uh, exchange rate between the Zimbabwe dollar and the U.S. dollar fell by almost 74% in one day. Mm-hmm. Um, then the second era, I think, was uh, sending in troops to the DRC uh, in support of uh, Laurent Kabila, who was, as you remember, was, you know, facing uh, um, uprising from you know, these people. Africa's first world war. That's right, <laughs> yes. Uh, and again, this was uh, unbudgeted for. Uh, so that threw the, the whole you know, economy into you know, in a tailspin. The result was that economically within the country, uh, the shortages, the, the cost of living was very high. Inflation rates were also increasing. Therefore, you get uh, bread rise or food rise in uh, the major cities by the end of 1997. And that was the beginning, I think, of the, of, of the decline. The next step, I think, is uh, the farm invasions of 2000, uh, which we can talk about later on in terms of what the, the background was. Uh, but the decision to invade uh, the white-owned commercial farms in 2000 had a number of uh, effects. One, I think, was to make uh, Zimbabwe almost a pariah state uh, internationally, uh, where uh, Zimbabwe faced a number of sanctions from uh, influential leading Western countries, uh, the United States uh, and the European uh, Union. And uh, that had uh, effects in terms of the inflow of uh, um, FDI. Uh, the other was uh, the fact that the people who were given the farms in 2000, uh, most of them had no farming experience. So the immediate effect was that there was a decline in production uh, in the agricultural sector. 
But anybody who knows the history of manufacturing in Rhodesia and Zimbabwe uh, knows that there's a very close link between the two um, in terms of you know, farming, providing raw materials for local uh, production, but also farming uh, becoming a market for the products coming from the, the industries. And the moment the uh, agricultural economy declined, the uh, knock-on effect on agriculture was almost you know, immediate. Uh, that's that's an, you know, another factor. Um, then I think the government, because it was facing shortages of uh, you know, FDI, you know, foreign direct investment, there were no inflows of new uh, cash, uh, no uh, capital for, for development. Uh, it found itself in a situation where it could not cope in terms of meeting its own domestic duties, uh, paying its civil servants and all that. And the process, uh, unfortunately, was that the governor of the Reserve Bank decided to print money uh, to meet those you know, shortfalls. Uh, and the story, we know now what happened. Uh, inflation jumped, you know, it tripled uh, in, uh, between 2000 and 2004, and then just skyrocketed into hyperinflation, uh, into billions of percent, so that the Zim dollar literally lost its value. And that also you know, put even more pressure on the manufacturing sector because they couldn't operate uh, without adequate you know, capital resources and they couldn't you know, import whatever uh, raw materials that they, they required. Then there were a number of other developments that took place in the, in the early 2000s, which also made Zimbabwe uh, increasingly uh, under attack from uh, the rest of the world. I'm thinking here of the Mulamachina uh, exercise in, in 2005, when uh, government uh, went through the cities across the country, destroying what they regarded as, you know, unsightly uh, uh, residential uh, areas uh, and throwing thousands of people out on the streets. And this was condemned by the United Nations through uh, the commission uh, on, uh, that was sent in uh, by uh, Tibai Juka. That compounded with uh, the imposition of uh, you know, travel sanctions from Europe and uh, the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act uh, by the United States in 2001 uh, just meant that uh, the economic climate in the country was not really conducive for um, the uh, expansion of manufacturing or even the survival. The end result is that many companies simply either closed down or they moved to uh, neighboring countries, resulting in massive unemployment. As we talk now, I think we're looking at about 90-95% of people unemployed. Those willing to work but who can't find work because there's no work. And many of those have um, moved across the border to many, South many, Africa or elsewhere. Many of them have moved to South Africa, mm. and, and that's uh, sort of shifting the, the pressure onto South Africa. Mm. Uh, so some of the incidents of xenophobia that we've seen of mm. that are uh, a reflection of that kind of pressure that is uh, coming in from, from, uh, from Zimbabwe. And in a way, uh, this is not unique, this deindustrialization. I mean, we're, we're speaking in Michigan where there's been considerable deindustrialization and where you're based now for some years in, in South Africa, there's been substantial decline, uh, for instance, of textiles in the face of Chinese imports, all of this coming under the rubric of globalization. So are there prospects for the reindustrialization of Southern Africa? Not really. I think you know the pressure is uh, increasing, as you say, from particularly from China uh, with the textile in, uh, industry. Uh, South Africa has suffered from it. Uh, I think Zimbabwe is suffering from it uh, because you know, the Chinese flood these local markets with uh, uh, you know, less expensive uh, products. 
uh, which makes it impossible for local uh, producers to uh, sustain themselves. Uh, I think the prospect of the recovering full uh, industrialization are not very uh, bright, uh, but that still does not explain why uh, Zimbabwe has got this very drastic uh, you know, uh, fall in, in uh, the industrial sector. Uh, I think that has to do more with uh, poor uh, policy making on the part of, of government uh, rather than you know, just the overall uh, effects of globalization. Perhaps building on your comments about Zimbabwe and South Africa, um, and Peters as well. What do you see that relationship doing for Zimbabwe? Because it's often discussed in terms of what it's doing for South Africa, uh, xenophobia being one, but obviously there are economic implications all over the place. So can you characterize that relationship for us in, in, in some concise way? I know it's a complicated issue, mm -hmm. but uh, how, how do those, what, two million or so Zimbabweans uh, now living and working in, in South Africa affect the economy back home and and What's that relationship like between Zimbabwe and South Africa from an economic perspective? Well, I, I think those um, people in the diaspora, particularly in South Africa, are actually helping to keep the Zimbabwean economy uh, you know, uh, ticking in terms of uh, you know, remittances of uh, their the earnings. Uh, they send money back home to their families in, 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 in Zim, and uh, that, I think, you know, helps to keep at least part of the population alive and operating. I don't know what percentage of those remittances are actually you know, factored into the economy. Uh, in, in, in Zim. Uh, but it's, it's not only just uh, South Africa, it's uh, the people who are in the diaspora in, in the United States, in, in Europe, and in everywhere. There's a joke that if you, you know, if, if you went to Iceland today, you'd probably find a Zimbabwean there. <laughs> uh, so the Zimbabwean diaspora, I think, you know, is, is, uh, is well established. It, it, it is a, a, a complex relationship in the sense that uh, the, those emittances help uh, the population back home. But because of the unequal relationship economically between the two, Zimbabwe has literally become just a market for South Africa. Uh, so that if you go to the supermarkets in, the, uh, in, in Harare, most of the goods that you're buying are actually coming from, from, from the border. Uh, and this helps to, uh, to make the situation even worse for local manufacturing industries. A kind of internal colonialism that South Africa <laughs> yeah, has been sure, accused sure, of, sure, of perpetrating, sure. not just, of course, in Southern Africa, but elsewhere on the continent mm -hmm. as well. Uh, now, we've, we've had several historians of Zimbabwe on the podcast over the years. I uh, think of Terry Ranger, Diana Jeter, Innocent Nsindo. And a recurring theme in those conversations is the role of patriotic history mm -hmm. in Zimbabwe something we also talked about with Jabulani Sitole in South Africa and, and, and others. It's also the topic of your talk at the African Studies Center in just a little bit here at MSU later today. So can you share with the listeners your particular take on patriotic history and its wider implications, perhaps even beyond the academy? Okay. Um, as, you, as you know, it was uh, you know, uh, Terence Ranger who in 2004 uh, raised the alarm, the images of this new form of history that uh, was uh, that he termed uh, patriotic history. The interesting thing is that the people who are pushing that history, most of them are actually not historians at all. Uh, they're people from uh, <laughs> different walks of life. I think one is a social scientist, one is a uh, communication uh, expert, the other one is a sociologist. The only, I think, two historians that were part of, of uh, that uh, uh, patriotic history uh, initiative, and that was Tenim Dengue, who is now led. Uh, and uh, uh, former Minister of uh, Education, Jigwe But uh, the rest of them are not historians. 
So it's not really history in the sense that you and I understand it. I think this is um, a narrative that is designed to promote particular ends, and those ends are to uh, justify the continued existence and domination of ZANU-PF uh, and uh, to silence uh, any dissent. Uh, so it's a very selective type of history which uh, silences um, alternative voices uh, and which uh, you know, highlights simply the history of uh, ZANU-PF. So in terms of the struggle, ZANU-PF is presented as the only party that fought uh, for independence. Uh, one had labor years of ZAPU uh, as a, a major player in, in that, uh, in the, in the, in that uh, uh, exercise. It's narrative that I think becomes more and more authoritarian uh, and which narrows the, the, the democratic space in the country. Uh, in the sense that it now divides the nation into two uh, camps, the patriots and the sellouts. Uh, and the sellouts are those in the opposition. So the MDC and Shangirai, uh, uh, those are sellouts. Uh, and anybody who supports ZANU-PF, who, is in, you know, who supports Robert Mugabe, he is a patriot. Uh, and that then makes it very difficult for uh, the nation to have any meaningful dialogue. Uh, because any political dissent is uh, likely to get you labeled as an enemy rather than a political opponent. Uh, so the narrative, uh, the political narrative in, in Zim now is uh, becoming very narrowed and very confined only to the Zanpi voice. Uh, and the problem is that once you've been labeled as not being a patriot, then you are expected to subject you, know, to, well, what, whatever mistreatment you get from either state agencies or supporters of, of the party, taken as a, a normal thing to do because you're not uh, really a member of, you know, of this country. Uh, then there's also the distinction that's being made between uh, who is Manawevu, son of the soil, uh, and who is uh, you know, an, an alien, an external uh, being. Whites now who used to be... Uh, from independence, Zimbabweans, white Zimbabweans. Uh, now Mugabe says they don't belong to Africa. Therefore, they can't claim any rights of citizenship. Children of uh, migrant laborers who came into the country back in the 1930s, 1940s, who have never known any other country, are now being labeled as uh, aliens uh, who should uh, renounce their citizenship in the countries of origin. Uh, so the third, fourth generation People from Malawi who have never been to Malawi, who have been Zimbabweans all along, suddenly are being labeled as aliens. They get uh, ID cards that actually say uh, alien uh, on them. Uh, therefore, that, that denies them access to uh, resources and that are given to citizens. So the, the implications domestically, I think, are very, very uh, worrying. Uh, but what Mugabe has been able to do, and I think done successfully, is that he's rubbed his own uh, message in sort of pan-African rhetoric, uh, which has gained him sympathy on the African continent, you know, in ways that many Zimbabweans do not really fully understand and appreciate. Mm -hmm. He's the only president who's had standing ovations in, at any sort of pan-continental uh, events that have been held in the last uh, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, they, I remember when he came to South Africa, I think it was the, the inauguration of uh, uh, Zuma's uh, presidency. Uh, as he walked into, you know, uh, the, uh, the area where the process was going to take place. Uh, he got a loud cheer from African presidents there. Uh, so he, he has managed to hide, if you like, his own uh, agenda 
behind this uh, rhetoric that you know sees places Zimbabwe as uh, a country that is fighting against Western imperialism. You know, uh, Zimbabwe will never be a colony again. You know, he says that all the time. Uh, and he links this to the whole history of, of slavery and uh, colonialism and all that. So he's been very clever at you know, packaging his message. But in terms of uh, uh, the country, I think the patriotic history is something that is really, really uh, terrifying and, and, and terrible. He's been particularly successful there, although, of course, patriotic history is not unique to Zimbabwe. And we've seen similar things with with citizenship uh, played out in countries like Cote d'Ivoire and mm-hmm. earlier Zambia and so on and so forth. But And even here, Trump recently has launched into a, a, a patriotic history uh, vein uh, talking about Andrew Jackson and the Civil War, although Andrew Jackson <laughs> died well before the Civil War. And, and we've seen the airbrushing of the history of slavery in, in states like Texas out of the school curriculum. So this abuse of history is... Is, is quite widespread. Um, uh, but I was wondering here, this, um, this very interesting question about the, the power of Pan-Africanism, uh, I mean, because it has this, you, you don't see it, interestingly, in Asia or Latin America. Mm. You don't see Pan-Asianism, uh, but there is this uh, lingering um, uh, virility, or if you like, of, of the appeal to a shared uh, history. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering that how you see this playing out in, in, in the future, because today you'll be talking, you'll be framing your talk here um, about authoritarian nationalism and politics. Can you imagine a scenario with the passing of Robert Mugabe whereby this uh, authoritarian nationalism will, will come under challenge or will it continue ad infinitum? My take is that you know, the problem that is facing Zimbabwe is much bigger than Robert Mugabe. Uh, I think it's more than the problem caused by one, one person. Mm. Uh, I think it's the whole culture that uh, the ZANU-PF as a party has uh, developed over the years, which uh, will determine the future of the country. Uh, Robert Mugabe could pass uh, away today uh, and uh, get uh, somebody else from the party to take over. I doubt very much that much will change. So there's a need for complete revamp in terms of you know, the uh, political approach uh, to uh, the running the country, uh, because I think it's much more a system rather than an individual. There are times when I think Mugabe is actually now a prisoner of his own system. Uh, so whether you know, it's, uh, his uh, subordinates who take over uh, the party, if the party is presently configured, very little will change. Well, uh, Professor Alois Malombo, thank you very much, Tatenda, for talking to Africa past and present. Azita, Tatenda, thank you very much. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>